0: We can all understand that tension, can't we? We have all felt that tension. I love that quote by Kendrick Lamar. It was always me versus the world until I found out it was me versus me, which is the first step to solving the problem that all of us feel and solving the tension that all of us deal with from time to time. One of the things you have to remember, and you know this already, this is not new information for you, but one of the things that's important for all of us to remember from time to time is this. It's impossible to solve a problem if you don't know what's causing the problem. And I bring that up because... Some of you, some of us, you've spent a lot of time sol- trying to solve you. I've spent a lot of time trying to solve me. You've tried to solve you. You've spent a lot of money trying to solve you. You've gone to counselors trying to solve you. You've tried different jobs or techniques and you know, approaches trying to solve you. You've come to church trying to solve you. We've all spent a lot of time trying to solve us. The problem is, in the course of trying to solve you, when you discover as much as you try, you can't really solve you, it costs you a lot when you fail at that, doesn't it? For some of you, it cost you a job. For some of you, it cost you a marriage or a relationship that mattered deeply to you. For some of you, because you couldn't solve you, it cost you time. It cost you money. It cost you a dream. It cost you sleep. For all of us who have been in this situation, it's cost us peace. And I don't know if there's anything more valuable to any of us than having peace. And yet, if you can't get to the point where you figure out how to solve you, you're never going to be fully at peace. And the reason you have such a hard time solving you and the reason I have such a hard time solving me is because we never get to the root of the problem. We never get to the root issue of what's causing the difficulty in terms of solving you and solving me. So here's what I want to do for the next two weeks. And this is going to be the worst promo for a series ever, so I'm telling you up front. Here's what we're going to do for the next two weeks. And this is not arrogant. It's going to sound arrogant, but it's not arrogant. For the next two weeks, I want us to talk about, I want to try to help you see what your problem is. Now I know that sounds arrogant, but I have the same problem. I'm in the same boat as you, okay? I want to help you see what your problem is, and I'm actually not smart enough to know what your problem is. I'm just going to show you what Paul, who wrote most of the documents that are now in our New Testament, what this first century writer had to say about what your problem is and what my problem is. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, what in the world does a guy who lived in the first century know about me? That's a valid question. Here's a guy who was highly educated, though. Here's a, here's a guy who was incredibly successful. Here's a guy who was so driven. Here's a guy who many people, secular as well as Christian, would say, All right, you want to talk about the people who've had the biggest impact on the world? You got to put him in the top five, you got to put him in the top ten. But in spite of the fact that he lived in an entirely different culture and time as us, he knew exactly what was going on with you, and he knew exactly what was going on with me because Human nature has not changed. He was facing the same problems that we are. He was trying to solve him just like we try to solve us. As a matter of fact, just to show you how much he gets us, let me read you part of what he wrote. He said this, I do not understand what I do. Does that sound familiar? This is Paul's way of saying, I don't understand why I do the things that I do and why I don't do the things that I want to do. I don't get it. It's frustrating. It's difficult. It's challenging. It is painful. There are areas of my life where I want to do something, and yet for the life of me, I can't keep doing what I want to do. And there are other areas where I don't want to do something, and by golly, I just keep doing it over and over again. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. And it is so frustrating. I want to do good there, I just can't do it. I keep saying I'm always going to do this, and then I never do it. I keep saying I'm going to follow through and be that kind of person, I just can't seem to be. But what I hate, I do. Paul's going, what makes it even worse? I cannot, not only can I not do the things I want to do, but I keep doing the very things that I say I don't want to do. In other words, Paul's going, what is it about me that makes it so hard for me to follow through on what I know is best for me to do? He says, and if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. Now, when he talks about law, he's talking about a standard. So, another way to, to, read this, is I agree that the standard is good. Now let me explain to you what Paul's addre- addressing here. He's referring to the fact that he believed, and for him, the standard was a standard from God. But Paul said, there is a standard by which I'm living my life. There are some values that I hold that I believe are best and good for human beings to live by. And yet here I am, and even though I know that the standard I'm trying to live by is a good standard, After all, I said I wanted to live by it. After all, I have decided if I could just live up to this standard, things would be better for me. If I could just live up to this standard, then I would be the person that I most want to be. I'd be the person I was created to be. Paul says, in spite of the fact that there are these values, that there's this standard, that there's this law that I'm trying to live up to, in spite of the fact I know it is in my best interest, it's so frustrating because I still can't do the thing that I know is in my best interest. Now, we can all relate, can't we? Because you have a standard by which you live your life. For some of you, for those of us who follow Jesus, it may be the standard that God has given us. And you say, okay, they're my values. I've adopted his values. I want to live life the way he said to live it. I think that's what's best for me. And yet in spite of the fact that you know what's best for you, you struggle to do it. For others of you, it may not be God's standard, but you have a standard. It could be the standard your parents passed on to you, and you spend your life trying to live by the values that your parents instilled in you. Or it could be society's standard. This is the thing that most people in society believe is good and true, so I'm going to live by those values. And you think there is a right and a wrong. You think there's a right and wrong. And the reason you think there's a right and a wrong is because you are convinced there is a standard by which everyone should live their life. For some of you, you have made your own standard. You've taken some things from here, some things from here, some things from here. You've come up with your own standard to define what's right and wrong, what's best for you. But think about this. In spite of the fact that you have some standard and you would say, that is a good standard. I want to live up to that standard. And in spite of the fact that you and I are so selfish that we will always tend to do what's in our best interest. When it comes to the standard of doing the things that we know are best for us to do. Doing the things that we should be motivated above everything else to do because it's going to turn out in our best interest. We still can't live up to the standard. Why in the world is that? How do you explain that in you? How do you explain that in me? I know that's best for me. I want to do it. I want to be that kind of person. And I still, in Paul's words, I can't do what I want to do, and I keep doing the very thing I don't want to do. What causes that in all of us? Well, Paul had an explanation. And here was the conclusion he came to about what was going on in him and what was going on in you and what goes on in me. He says, as it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. Sin living in me, what in the world does that mean? Well, he's going to explain this in just a second. This sounds like a a really bad sci-fi movie, you know, the ones with the aliens that live inside of somebody and, you know, just, this is kind of what it sounds like. And in a sense, this is what he's referring to in the sense that Paul was saying, there is something alien or foreign in you. There's something alien and foreign in me. There is something in us that was never meant to be in us. He refers to it as sin, or as you're going to see in a minute, he refers to it as a sin nature that is inside of you and inside of me. And Paul says, that thing that is in you that was never intended to be in you, the thing that's in me that was never intended to be in me, Paul's saying, that is what causes me not to do what I want to do, and it causes me to do the very things I don't want to do. This is the root of the problem. All along I was thinking it was me versus the world. It was their fault that that happened. It was their fault that I responded that way. It was their fault that I fell back into that habit. It was their fault, it was their fault, it was their fault. But Paul said, I finally looked in the mirror and realized I think it's me versus me. I think there is something inside of me that is the problem. He goes on. He says this, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. Now Paul's not saying there's nothing good in you at all. Paul's saying, this thing that's in you that was never intended to be in you, your sinful nature, there's no good in that. There's no good at all in that. And it's this sinful nature in you that has a power greater than you that's creating all the problems for you. He continues, for I have the desire to do what is good. So he's going, there's a part of me that wants to do the right thing. There's a part of you that wants to do the right thing, isn't there? There's a part of you that wants to be that kind of person. There's a part of you that aspires to have that kind of character. There's a part of you who wants to treat people that way. There's a part of you who wants to live up to that standard. He says, for I have a desire to do what's good. My problem is I can't carry it out. Sound familiar? I mean, we all get that, don't we? He continues, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. It's like he's been watching us, hasn't he? This is our life in a nutshell. You say, no, 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 Matt, I'm real disciplined. I'm able to do, okay. But for all of us, in spite of however much discipline you apply to your life, for all of us, there are some areas that discipline just doesn't seem to work, does it? We've all got those areas that we've tried and we've tried and we've tried and we just haven't been able to make any progress. I want to eat healthy and exercise. I'm committed. I'm going to eat healthy and exercise. We just can't follow through. Time and time again, we try. Time and time again, we fail. And it's not somebody else's fault that we fail. We self-sabotage. We do it to ourselves. We do the very thing we don't want to do. I want to be disciplined with my spending. I want to live on a budget. I want to create margin. I don't want to have any debt. We know it's in our best interest. And yet, time and time and time again, we self-sabotage. And we end up right back doing the very thing that we said we didn't want to do, doing the very thing that created the problem and the pain for us to begin with. I don't want to look at that stuff anymore. I know looking at that stuff is creating an addiction, is creating a problem. I'm not going to do that anymore. And then next thing you know, you turn around and do the very thing that created so much pain for you and for other people. And you repeat it again. After, imagine this, after seeing the pain it created in somebody else's eyes, after experiencing the hurt it created, not just for you, but for the people you care about the most, and after saying, I will never do that to you again, then you do it, Again, or after promising yourself, I won't do that again. You do it again. I want to be a good person. I want to be a good husband, a good father, a good son, a good daughter, a good spouse, whatever it is. We've got this ideal. We have this standard. And then in spite of the fact we know that's best for us, we can't seem to live up to it. Why in the world is that? Again, you can't solve a problem if you don't know what's actually causing the problem. You can try to monitor those behaviors and control those behaviors, but eventually you slip up and eventually you slip back into the same habits and the same patterns. So what is the problem? It's not more information, is it? Is the reason that you and I struggle with what we struggle with because we don't have enough information? I mean, this is the approach that our culture tends to take. Well, clearly we just need a little more information. Let's just Help them know a little bit more and educate them a little bit better, and then it'll solve all that. And I'm all for educating people. But you don't have an information problem, and I don't have an information problem. I mean, think about it. Do you really need to read another book on healthy living to know what to do? Oh, you already know. Do you really need to read another book on financial management? Do you really need to listen to somebody else tell you, hey, why don't you spend less than you make and pay off all your debt? Oh, you already know. Do you really need somebody to tell you that pornography poisons your mind and your relationships? No. You already know. Do you really need somebody to tell you you shouldn't cheat on your spouse? You already know. You really need somebody to tell you you should be honest. Stop being dishonest. Even if you think it's going to get you in trouble, quit lying. No, you you know that already. Do you really need another self-help book? there's, There's plenty of that. You already know what you need to know. We do not have an information problem. We have a motivation and an application problem. And this is the cycle of our lives, isn't it? I want to do this, and I can't seem to do it. I do it for a little bit, and then I slip right back. And I don't want to do that, and I'm able not to do that for just a little while, and then next thing you know, there it goes again. There it goes again. So what do you do with that? What is the problem? Paul says, Your problem is actually not an information problem. Your problem is an in you problem. Paul believed you have a sin nature and I have a sin nature inside of me. Not that we just sin every now and then, but we actually have a sinful nature in us that is creating all the problems for us. So how do you fix that? What do you do with that? Why in the world would Paul go there? If there's something in you that should never be in you that was not intended to be in you, How do you deal with that? Paul believed that thing, that sinful nature, it's way more powerful than you or me, which is hard for some of us to swallow. Some of us are proud enough, we think we can overcome anything. And it's why no matter how many times we hear there is help available, we don't want to take help. We want to beat it on our own. Paul would say, you will never ever beat it on your own, you will always be defeated. But there is a solution. Here's how he described the solution. He said, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless. There's that word. None of us want to acknowledge this. I'm powerless. I don't want to feel powerless. Paul says, when it comes to this, you are powerless. In other words, he's painting a picture of, there is a part of you that does desire to do good. There's a part of you that wants to be who you were created to be. There's a part of you who wants to live up to the standard that you know is good. But there's also another part of you, this sinful nature part of you, that was never intended to be there, but it's there now. And there's a tug of war between these two things inside of you. And Paul's point is, this sinful nature is so powerful, it will win the tug of war every single time. You are powerless on your own to beat it. And again, for those of us who struggle with pride, this is really hard to admit, because we think, no, no, I can beat whatever. I'm strong enough, I'm disciplined enough, I'm committed enough, I will win that war. But your history proves you cannot win that war. Your history proves there are, because there are still areas of your life that no matter how hard you've tried, you've not been able to do what you want to do or be who you want to be. This is why Paul says, you're powerless. But there's good news. At just the right time when we were still powerless, he says, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, that's a bit offensive, isn't it? Ungodly. I mean, if you were describing you, let's be honest, I'm the same way. If you were describing you, you would say, well, I'm not perfect. Thank you for sharing that. We had no idea. I always chuckle when people say that. We start out, I'm not perfect. I'm like, we all knew you were the last one to find out actually yourself. So glad to know you're aware now. No, no, we know that, right? We're not perfect. And we would say, I'm not perfect, I'm not perfect, but I'm not ungodly. I don't get everything right, but I'm a pretty good person. I mean, we all know some ungodly people. We could point out some ungodly people. It's a little offensive to us to think, you know, I'm not going to embrace the idea that I'm ungodly. That doesn't make me feel very good about myself. So let me clear a little bit of that up for you. Let me tell you why Paul called you and called me ungodly. Because God is perfect. And as we have established, we are all not perfect. That means we are not like God, which makes us ungodly that simple. We're not like God, so we're ungodly. And here's the good news. You are ungodly, but you are in good company because everybody else falls into the same category. So a matter of fact, as I was preparing this, I thought, you know what I'm going to do at this point in the message? I'm going to pause. And I'm going to tell everybody to turn to a person next to them and say, you're ungodly. I thought that would be fun. And then I got to thinking, and I was like, no, because some of us would get into that a little too much, and marriages would end, and fights would break out, and just I'd create more problems and it was worse. So, so don't do that, okay? It's in your mind. You can think, that person next to me, they really are. But so are you. So are you. You're in good company. We're all ungodly. It levels the playing field. Now, here's the beauty of this. And here's what Paul is getting at. Here's why Paul thinks it's so important for us to get to the point where we're humble enough to acknowledge, I cannot beat the sinful nature in me. I am not like God. I'm ungodly. He says, the minute you acknowledge that, you make available to you the thing you need most to beat your sinful nature. You now recognize the fact that Jesus died for you. Until you realize you're ungodly, then what Jesus did will never be personal for you. It won't matter to you. It will not move you in any way. You will not find it relevant to you. But the minute you discover and recognize, I cannot live up to the standard. I can't be who I was created to be. I'm ungodly. At that moment, you realize you are in need of some help. I keep doing the things that I don't want to do. I can't do the things that I want to do. I need some help. At that moment, Paul says you are in a great place because Jesus died for you. He died to fix that problem in you. He died for the ungodly. We'll come back to why that is in just a minute. But Paul goes on. He says, "I don't want you to miss the." breath of this. He says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. This is just his way of saying, okay, we all see in society at times, somebody give their life for someone who's good. It's rare, but we see it. And in our country, we've seen it throughout our history at times, particularly with our military personnel, right, who are willing to risk their life. And in some cases, in many cases, they have given their lives for people that they believe are good and worth protecting, you and me. So Paul's going, you'll see that every now and then. Do not get confused and think this is what Jesus did for you. Jesus wasn't somebody who looked and saw a good person and thought, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice myself on their behalf. Paul says, no, the exact opposite happened. He says this in verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is Paul's way of saying, It was his own love, and that love was an entirely different category than what we have ever seen before. This was the best person ever giving his life for people who were not good and were not godly. It is not rare, think of it this way, it is not rare for subjects to give their life for a king. You know what's rare? It's rare to see a king give his life for his subjects. You know what you never see, except in this one instance. But what Jesus did is it was a king giving his life for his subjects who were in rebellion against the king. Think about that. A king giving his life for his subjects when those subjects were in rebellion against the king. Paul says that is the kind of love that your heavenly father had for you. He gave his life for you when you were in rebellion against him. The way Paul put it was while we... We're still sinners. Jesus died for us. Now, this was so personal to Paul. He thought about this differently than you and I think about it. Because Paul was literally alive at the time Jesus was hanging on the cross. Paul was a few hundred miles away. And so as Paul is writing this, he is writing this thinking, it takes my breath away. At the very moment Jesus was hanging on a cross for my sin, I was over here sinning. I was actively rebelling against God at the very moment that God was giving his life for me. It couldn't have been any more personal. It couldn't have been any more breathtaking for Paul. But for you and for me, the same thing is true. Jesus was hanging on a cross dying for your sin and mine, knowing all of our sins were going to be committed in the future. That means if there's a point in your life where you wonder, I just don't think, I don't know, could God ever forgive me for what I did? Well, when Jesus died on a cross for you, he died for all your sins that were yet to be committed because you didn't exist yet. So the answer is, yes, he can forgive you for that. He knew in advance you were going to do it, and he, he thought you were still worth him dying for. At just the right time, when we were powerless powerless to defeat this sinful nature on our own at just the right time when we couldn't win the tug of war. At just the right time when we were still sinners in rebellion against God, God chose to die for us. Which leads to a question that I get asked from time to time and I just think it's a phenomenal question. Why did that require Jesus dying? Well, the short answer is this. Because the consequence of your sinful nature and mine is always death. The consequence of sinful nature is always death. See, there are some things that are in this world that God never intended to be in this world. When God created us as humanity, you know what did not exist? You know what God didn't introduce into the world? You know what he didn't introduce into the equation? There was no sin, no sorrow, no suffering, and no death. The world, the existence that God created for us, was a world in existence free of all of those things. But it was us as humanity choosing to rebel against God that opened the door and ushered in sin, sorrow, suffering, and death. And it makes me wonder sometimes when we're in the middle of sorrow, when we're in the middle of suffering, when we're dealing with death, and this is true for all humans, and we find ourselves going, God, why would you let that happen? Where are you, God? I can't believe you would. And why wouldn't you fix this? I can just imagine that God's up there scratching his head going... Do they not remember? Do they not understand? I never wanted that to be a part of their experience to begin with. They brought that into the world on their own. I had nothing to do with that. And yet in spite of the fact that we rebelled against him and ushered all of those things into his creation, he did not abandon us. He did not leave us. According to Paul, while we were still powerless, he died for us. And when he died for us, Jesus did two extraordinary things that get to the heart of this struggle you and I have of being our own worst enemy. They get to the heart of, why do I keep doing the things I don't want to do? Why do I not do the things that I want to do? They get to the heart of overcoming the sinful nature in me and in you. First of all, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty of our sin. The penalty was death. And so Jesus showed up and said, I'm going to do for them. I'm going to take on myself what they deserve to experience. I'm just going to shoulder all the consequences of their sin. Put it all on me. And I'm going to deal with the separation from God so that they don't have to be separated anymore. I'm going to pay for their rebellion so they have a way back into the kingdom, so they have a way back into the family, so they can be reunited with their king, their heavenly father once again. That's what he was doing when he died on the cross, taking your sin in mind, your consequence in mind, everything that we should have experienced is saying, nope, I'll put it on my shoulders because I want it to be possible for them to be good with God, to be good with me one more time. But Jesus did a second thing. Not only did he pay the penalty of our sin, but he broke the power of our sin. This is so important to understand, because this gets right to the heart of the sinful nature in you and me. When you get to the point where you're willing to admit and acknowledge the truth that Paul believed, that you and I are powerless to beat our sinful nature on our own, Suddenly, the death of Jesus makes all the difference in the world. The death of Jesus is about more than, well, I'm just asking God to forgive me of my sins because I want everything to be good when I die one day. I want to go to heaven. Paul's going, no, 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 it's way more than that. It's way more than that. When Jesus died on a cross, he broke the power of that sinful nature that's in you and me. In other words, that thing that you were powerless to defeat, that thing that had its control over you, It doesn't have to control you anymore. Jesus has already proven he is greater and more powerful than that. Sin doesn't have to be your master anymore. You don't have to keep doing the things that you don't want to do. You don't have to keep not doing the things that you wish you could do. It is possible you have at your disposal a power greater than all that to live and be who you were created to be, to live by the standard that is good. This is what Paul believed, that there's a moment where you have to make a decision where you acknowledge that you need help. But when you do, he believed help was available to solve the root problem you and I have, and that is the sinful nature inside of us. So if you were to ask Paul, is there hope? (laughs) I keep doing what I don't want to do, Paul. You get that. Clearly, you did the same. I can't do the things that I wish I could do. You get that. Is there hope? Is there hope? Is there hope? Paul would say, Yeah, there's hope, but the hope isn't in you. The hope isn't in trying harder. The hope isn't in being more disciplined. The hope isn't in getting more information. The hope is in understanding and embracing what Jesus did for you. Understand and embracing the fact he paid the penalty for your sins so you could be forgiven and have a relationship restored with your heavenly father. But he also broke the power of that sinful nature in you. So you don't have to be controlled by it anymore. So two weeks ago, I'm sitting talking with my six-year-old son. Six years old. And he looks at me, and I was stunned when he asked this question. He looks at me and he says, Dad, why do we keep on sinning when we don't want to sin? I was like, what a great question. Go ask your mom. (laughs) (laughs) No, I said, okay. I said, that's a great question. Let's talk about it. And what I did is I tried to put in Six-year-old language, exactly what Paul told us. Now, I don't have time today to answer that question. But that's what we're going to talk about next week. Because there is a solution to that. Because some of us were followers of Jesus and we're going, okay, I'm a part of his family. I have a relationship with him. I still can't do what I want to do. I still find myself doing what I don't want to do. What's wrong? What's what's the problem? Is there a solution to this? There is a solution to this. And the apostle Paul knew what the solution was, and Paul told us what it was. And it's part of the process of learning and cooperating with what God is doing in you because your sinful nature, as powerful as it feels in you, if you are a follower of Jesus, that sinful nature actually has no power anymore. It's bluffing. And next week, I'll show you how to know it's bluffing. And how to stop listening to it. But before we get there, the first step is this for all of us. The first step is will you acknowledge, will I acknowledge that I really am powerless on my own? It's so hard to acknowledge. I mean, there's so much pride in me. I don't want to admit that. I think I can figure it out and I'm a pretty good person and I can manage this and monitor my behavior, but yeah. But you can't fix that thing in you, you know it's there the thing that keeps you from doing the thing that you know is in your best interest to do. Paul would say that's your sinful nature and you are powerless to stop it on your own. So will you acknowledge that you're powerless? Will you acknowledge that you need help? Will you acknowledge that you have a problem and the problem is not the world. The problem is you. The problem is me. That we're our own worst enemy because this sinful nature is at work inside of us. And will you acknowledge the only way to break free is with the help of Jesus. It's through embracing the forgiveness he offers and the relationship he offers through his death and his resurrection. The only way to break free is to come back to the king that we have rebelled against and say, I'm sorry. I want to be a part of the family again. I want to be a part of the kingdom. I need your help. The only way to break free is to get to the point that we acknowledge and admit in humility that we can't save ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. We need someone to save us. And the great news is the minute you do that, that's when you can embrace the Savior. The minute you do that, that's when Jesus becomes personal to you. Because he will not force his way into your life. Even though he loves you, even though he's extending forgiveness to you, he's not going to force you to accept it. He's not going to force you to take his help. As I've said before, he's waiting for your invitation and your cooperation. But the minute you're willing to do that, he says, okay. I've taken care of the penalty of your sin now. And I broke the power of your sin. Let me show you how to live. In that truth. Let me show you how to live with that understanding. Let me show you how to live using my power and my forgiveness and not your own power and your own effort. That is the hope Paul believed we all had. So, for some of us, for some of us who have been following Jesus for a while, maybe today is the day we just need to pause and say, Thank you because we take it for granted. Thank you that you as the king would invite me into your family and back to your kingdom even though I had been rebelling against you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for giving me hope. Maybe today's the day we acknowledge, you know what? While I couldn't do anything about my sin, I can't do anything about the sinful nature in me now. I just need your help, Jesus, so I'm going to start cooperating with you. For some of you, you have never reached a point where maybe you understood that. Or maybe you were humble enough to acknowledge that you were in need of a Savior. But today could be the day for you. And here's the beauty of the King. Here's the beauty of our Heavenly Father. It doesn't matter what you've done. He says, you're invited. Forgiveness is available. You just got to be willing to take it. You were ungodly. You need some help. So do I. The good news is you're in good company. You're in need of a savior. The good news is someone has already done everything they need to do to save you, to help you, to change you. You just have to be willing to cooperate with him. Let me pray for us. Father, it's so hard sometimes to acknowledge this because our pride just gets in the way and we We feel like, okay, I can take it from here. I can be who I want to be. I can do what I want to do. And yet the reality is, as long as we keep trying to do that, as long as we assume it's a problem with somebody else or a problem with our circumstances, we never get to what's actually causing the problem. And we can't solve a problem if we don't know what's at the root of it. So help us to have enough humility to acknowledge we're the problem, that there's a sinful nature in us that we are powerless to defeat on our own. And for those of us who have chosen to follow you, we are so grateful that you extended forgiveness to us when we didn't deserve it. In Paul's words, that when we were still powerless, when we were still sinning, that you died for us. For those who've never embraced the forgiveness that you offer. My prayer, God, is that right now they would be humble enough just to tell you, I need you. I'm not going to be able to fix me. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. And the extraordinary thing to me is the minute we humble ourselves enough to reach out and ask for your help, you step in. It doesn't matter how rebellious we've been. You extend forgiveness. You make us a son or a daughter of yours. So my prayer is that they'll take that step right now. Because you've already paid the penalty for our sins. You broke the power of our sin. And you've invited us into a relationship with you to experience the benefits of all of that. Thank you for loving us that much. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.